This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Frank Edward Ray, better known as Ed to those who knew him, began his workday like any other. The 55-year-old school bus driver picked up the students along his route and dropped them off at Dairyland Elementary School. It was the second-to-last day of summer school, and the students were treated to a day at the community pool. It was Thursday, July 15, 1976, in sunny Chowchilla, California, and it was a perfect summer day for being in the water. As 4 p.m. rolled around, the kids, who were all between the ages of 5 and 14, loaded back onto the bus for the ride home. A brother and sister were the first to be dropped off. Then it was on to the next. After almost 25 years of driving the same route, twice a day, five days a week, Ed could do it with his eyes closed. But as he drove the school bus along very familiar roads, he came upon an unusual scene. A white van was stopped just ahead, in the middle of the road. The doors were open. Assuming it was having mechanical trouble, Ed pulled the bus alongside and looked for the driver. Known as a quiet and genuinely decent man, he was more than happy to offer any assistance he could. But, curiously, no one was around. At least, no one he could see. That was until three men came out of nowhere and quickly approached the bus. Ed knew that his normally uneventful job was about to get very interesting. What he could not have known at the time was that for him and the kids aboard his bus, things were about to become a living nightmare. Before he had a chance to get the bus back into gear, the group of men had taken positions in front of the vehicle and by the door. All three were wearing nylon leggings to cover their faces, and they all wore coveralls. With a pistol in hand, one of the men walked over to Ed's window and politely asked if he would kindly open the passenger door. As instructed, he reluctantly complied. Once the men were inside, they ordered everyone, including Ed, to the back of the bus. At that point, the three men split up. One took the driver's seat of the school bus, while another went to the back with everyone else. The third man got back into the van. The convoy traveled a short distance to a well-hidden patch of trees just off the road. There was another van parked close by. The masked men unloaded the terrified children along with Ed and separated them into two groups. The first group, which consisted of 12 kids, was loaded into one of the awaiting vans. The remaining 14 children were ordered into the back of the other one. Ed was also placed in the second vehicle. The windows on both cargo vans had been covered up, leaving it almost totally dark in the back. It was also extremely hot. They would have to get used to it for a while, because wherever they were going would take hours. Although, no matter how miserable the conditions seemed, it would pale in comparison to the situation they were about to find themselves in.
My name is Eric Crosby. Welcome to True. It didn't take very long before parents started wondering why the bus carrying their children was late. Ed Ray was always on schedule, so it only took about 15 minutes for the phone to start ringing at the police station. Over the next couple of hours, people from all over the area were driving around searching for the missing school bus. This was an addition to the local sheriff's office, who already had an airplane flying above. As nighttime settled in, with still no sign of 26 children and their bus driver, the search went off-road. It was close to 9 p.m. when authorities finally located the abandoned school bus. It had been cleaned out, leaving investigators with no leads. It was as if everyone on board had simply vanished. The bus carrying the youngsters and driver from a summer school session at Dairyland Unified School was found empty in a bamboo-covered area of the Dry Berenda Slough. There is no doubt the bus was deliberately hidden in the thicket, and dust on the seats indicated the 26 youngsters were not aboard when the bus was driven into the slough. The mysterious disappearance would also indicate that at least two people had to be involved, one to drive the bus into the slough and another to guard the youngsters. There were other vehicle tracks on top of the bus tire tracks in the sand. Many of the worried parents were waiting at roadside, while others kept an all-night vigil at the Chachilla police station. It was the largest mass kidnapping in U.S. history, and it sparked immediate action nationwide. The president at the time, Gerald Ford, issued official orders that gave the FBI and all other government agencies whatever resources they needed to find the missing children. The governor of California announced that state and local police were operating with full emergency authority while the crisis continued. If you were unlucky enough to be driving a van at the time, there was little chance of not being pulled over and searched. With absolutely no trace of Ed or the kids, and no clues to where they might have gone, all sorts of theories began to emerge. Maybe it was a case of international terrorism or a serial killer. Some even suggested that it was an obvious case of alien abduction. The story was beyond sensational, and it spread quickly. Journalists from around the country began pouring into Chowchilla. At the present time, we know that there are 27 people missing since about uh, uh, 4.15 yesterday afternoon. And it's our job and the job of the entire law enforcement community here in uh, Chowchilla uh, to find these youngsters and the bus driver and to make sure we take the responsible people into custody for uh, uh, this particular crime. Of any it's a political act, you think? That's speculation, sir. Despite the influx of reporters, there wasn't much to report. Even with thousands of law enforcement officers and concerned citizens actively searching, they were still no closer to finding them. That's because Ed and the 26 children in his care had actually fallen off the face of the earth. Roughly 100 miles away in the town of Livermore, 
the two vans had pulled into a rock quarry. It was now 3.30 in the morning, 12 hours after they were ordered by gunpoint to exit the school bus. They had not had food, water, or any breaks at all during that time. Exhausted, starving, and completely terrified, the doors were finally opened, and everyone was ordered out of the vans. They were greeted by two of the armed men, who were still wearing the nylon leggings over their faces. A five-year-old girl, the youngest among the group, thought they looked a lot like the Easter Bunny, and innocently asked if she was right. Starting with Ed, they were all asked to confirm their full names before being told to strip down to their underwear. They were then escorted to a nearby hole in the ground and ordered in. Apparently, the kidnappers had been planning this for some time. They had buried a moving truck, covered it with dirt, and left a ladder sticking out to access it. They ran a couple of hoses from the surface to provide air and cut a few holes in the floor for the bathroom. Inside, there were several mattresses, a small amount of food and water, and a single flashlight. There was barely enough room to fit everyone, not to mention the walls and the roof looked like they were about to collapse under the weight of the dirt. But that was of no concern to the men above. When the last child was lowered inside the dark box, the small entry was covered with a heavy steel panel. To make sure it stayed in place, two large batteries weighing a couple of hundred pounds were placed on top. A moment later, everyone inside heard the horrifying sound of dirt being shoveled above them. They were almost 15 feet below the surface, in the middle of a rock quarry, being buried alive. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. the kidnappers had actually pulled it off. They managed to make 27 people disappear. With the hostages safely locked away underground, it was now time to make their demands known. That, however, was going to be a problem. The plan was to call the Chowchilla Police Department and instruct them to hand over $5 million for the release of Ed and the children. If anyone questioned whether they were the real kidnappers, well they had everyone's clothing to prove it. But when they tried calling, the phone lines were busy. 
Waiting a few minutes, they called again and got the same busy signal. This happened over and over again. Apparently, they had not anticipated that the lines would be tied up by the media and families of the missing children looking for information. Unable to deliver the ransom demand and exhausted from a long day of kidnapping school kids, the men went to sleep. The hostages weren't going anywhere, and they would just try to call again when they woke up. Unfortunately for them, that was a bit of a miscalculation. Back inside the buried container, the mood was, understandably, dark. Bus driver Ed Ray was trying to keep it together for the kids, but he wasn't successful. He was convinced that it was only a matter of time before the sagging roof collapsed entirely. He was pretty sure the oppressive heat and lack of fresh air would get him first, though. Dehydrated and defeated, Ed was trying to come to terms with their demise when something happened. Or maybe I should say, someone happened. One of the older students, 14-year-old Mike Marshall, decided he was going to at least try to escape before giving up all hope. So, with Ed's help and that of the other kids, they began stacking mattresses. When they got as close to the roof as possible, they tried pushing the metal sheet covering the entrance, but it wouldn't budge. The heavy batteries along with the dirt made moving it almost impossible. Attempt after attempt failed, and even worse, the roof was now really starting to buckle under the weight. It was only a matter of time before it fully collapsed, likely crushing everyone inside to death. Hours passed as the students tried their best to move the cover off the one exit, but nothing was working, and it was costing all of their remaining energy. No one had eaten anything substantial since the day before, and they were quickly running out of water. They were weak and losing hope, but they kept pushing against the metal sheet. And then it happened. As two of the older students gave it their all, the cover to the hole shifted a little. It was just enough to smell fresh air. It was also just enough to get a wood slat through. Before they pried open the exit further, Ed had a chilling thought. What if the kidnappers were on the surface? keeping an eye on the area. Would they shoot anyone who climbed out of the hole in the ground? So, preparing himself once again for what could be the end, Ed pulled himself up and looked around. To his immense relief, no one was there. At just after 8 p.m. on July 16, 1976, almost 30 hours after the ordeal began, Ed, followed by all 26 children, showed up at a nearby guardhouse. Ed was in his underwear and probably looked a little worse for wear considering what he had just gone through. But the guard didn't know any of that. So when he saw the large group of half-naked people walking toward him, he sounded the alarm. Ed had to yell a couple of times that they were the missing group from Chowchilla before the guard realized what was going on. They were finally out of danger but it was going to be a very long night before anyone could rest. The FBI needed to question all of them as soon as possible. 
Countless reporters were waiting back in town to find out the details of what they had gone through. Most importantly, their families were waiting anxiously to be reunited. A few hours later, the exhausted group was brought to a nearby facility where they underwent medical evaluations. Thankfully, no one suffered any serious physical injuries. It was around 4 a.m. when the chartered Greyhound bus carrying all 27 pulled into Chowchilla. A huge crowd of reporters and photographers waited for the first glimpse of the survivors. Parents surrounded the bus looking for their children and cried when they finally saw them. The last to exit the bus was Ed. He'd been up for nearly three days and was barely able to think straight. After reuniting with his wife and assuring her that he was all right, Ed agreed to speak to the press. He just had one request. There were to be no questions. He'd been asked enough questions by the FBI for one night. So Ed sat down in front of the microphones and cameras and described what happened. They had this building all lined with wire, big old mesh wire. They stood on the outside, we hear them cutting the wires and ceiling started to cave in and everything else. We thought we were going to have it right then, but kept begging to let us out. So later in the afternoon there, we never did hear them cutting the wires or no more. So me and a couple of boys decided we'd better start digging. We were going to lose our lives there, same as getting if we dug ourselves out. So when we started to move the steel plate, we couldn't hardly move it because it had two great big old batteries on top of it. One battery. The batteries I couldn't even lift by myself. I got the kid to help me. Then they had another big box built all around that, about 30 inches high. But just lucky we had a short block of wood in the thing there they had for a brace. About 7 o'clock, we got dug out. We handed all the kids up. I handed the kids up to the other boys, and we got out. Just lucky enough, there was a gravel pit right just within 200 feet of us, and the man over there, so he went and called the sheriff, and the sheriff and the fire trucks and everything else was there. So we had a big crowd. We all got home safe. That's my story, I guess. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. While all of this was still going on, the kidnappers were still fast asleep. They were totally unaware the hostages had made a dramatic escape overnight. They had no idea that while they were sleeping, authorities were descending on the rock quarry, that investigators were poring over the evidence left at the scene and getting closer to identifying them. They did, however, figure it out when they turned on the television the next day. There's never been anything like it. The kidnapping of the children from Chowchilla. The mysterious disappearance of 26 children and their school bus driver all vanishing while returning from a summer school outing on Thursday. Police and FBI do know today, however, when and how it all happened, but no one knows who did it or why they did it. With the plan now in total ruin, the kidnappers did what fugitives do. They ran. It didn't take very long for investigators at the rock quarry 
to determine that whoever buried the large 8-foot by 16-foot container truck must have had unfettered access. With security personnel and other employees at the facility, someone would have eventually noticed a group of trespassers digging a huge hole in the ground. So authorities started looking at people who worked at the quarry or had connections to it. That brought them to the doorstep of the owner, Frederick Woods III. He assured detectives that he had no idea why his business property was used or who could possibly be involved. While there, police wanted to speak with his 24-year-old son, Fred Woods IV, as well. Not only did he have access to the quarry, but he also had a criminal record. A couple of years earlier, he was arrested and charged with stealing a car and joyriding. Fred and two of his friends, brothers Richard and James Schoenfeld, were each given probation. The light sentence was due, in large part, to the fact their families were some of the wealthiest in the state. So it was natural that police wanted to ask Fred a few questions about the buried cargo vehicle at his father's rock quarry. The problem was that Fred Woods IV was missing. His parents had no idea where he was, and if they did, they were not cooperating. What was also interesting to investigators was that James and Richard were nowhere to be found either. On July 22, 1976, a week after the kidnapping, authorities returned to the Woods estate, this time with a search warrant in hand. For the next 24 hours, the large property was turned upside down as law enforcement looked for clues. They not only found one of the weapons presumed to be used during the kidnapping, but they also discovered a literal paper trail. Someone had written several pages worth of notes, including one page that was titled Plan. It clearly outlined what steps would be taken and what tools would be needed to pull off the kidnapping. It also laid out emergency plans in the unlikely event anything went wrong. In the paperwork, authorities also found the list of names and ages the men had collected from each child, along with Ed's, before they were ordered underground. As if that wasn't enough damning evidence, a draft of the ransom demand was also located. It read, in part, Your bus has been kidnapped. Put $2.5 million in each of the suitcases. Use old bills. Have ready at Oakland Police Station. Further instructions pending. We are Beelzebub. The men wanted authorities to think the children had been abducted by a satanic group. Throughout the notes, however, the kidnappers used their real names, clearly not intending anyone else to see them. But there it was. All the evidence police needed to have a judge sign arrest warrants for Fred, James, and Richard. Now, all they had to do was find them. Being sought are three men and two vans. Governor Brown has offered a $10,000 state reward for the capture of the suspects, and two men, as a matter of fact, in a van that apparently must have been similar to those being sought, were pulled over south of San Jose today. They were handcuffed and held until authorities determined that they indeed were not the suspects they were looking for. In the end, finding the three fugitives was not all that difficult. 
They weren't exactly master criminals, even if they thought they were. The first one to be apprehended was Richard Schoenfeld. The 22-year-old had fled back home to the San Francisco area, where he turned himself into police eight days after kidnapping Ed and the children. One down, two to go. As soon as they heard the news that the hostages had escaped, Fred and James took off to Reno, Nevada. But Fred still wanted to get as far away from the ensuing manhunt as he could. So he hopped a plane to Canada, landing in Vancouver, British Columbia. Once there, he kept a low profile and tried to find some under-the-table work. Fred watched a lot of TV and wrote a lot of letters, making several visits to the post office. He even sent a letter to a screenwriter about working together on a movie script about the kidnapping. While Fred was in Canada trying to strike a movie deal, James was trying desperately to cross the border as well, but failing miserably. He tried to enter Canada three times at two different locations. He was turned away each time because of his suspicious behavior and appearance. Apparently, the 24-year-old was overly nervous after having been on the run for nearly two weeks. James had nowhere to go. He had no money, was exhausted, and authorities across the country were looking for him. He knew that no matter what direction he picked, he would eventually be caught. So, like his younger brother, James decided it was time to do the right thing and turn himself in. Unfortunately, the inept criminal could not even surrender to police. As he was driving back to his parents' home in San Francisco, he was pulled over and arrested. That was on July 29, 1976, 13 days after the kidnapping. Two down, one to go. On the same day James Schoenfeld was taken into custody, RCMP officers in Vancouver were on a stakeout. They had received information from the FBI that Fred was there and had been sending letters from the downtown post office. For hours, the undercover officers watched people coming and going with no sign of the suspect. At one point, they mistook someone for Fred and before realizing their mistake, had wrestled them to the ground. Apologetic but disappointed it wasn't their guy, police went back to their positions near the post office. The waiting continued, and as the afternoon grew late, it looked like Fred was going to be a no-show. For all they knew, the American fugitive had already left Vancouver. A short while later, they had their answer. Walking up to the entrance of the post office, there he was, Fred Wood, a.k.a. The Chowchilla Kidnapper. The moment Fred exited the building, he knew his days on the run were over. All three men were charged with robbery, kidnapping for ransom, and causing bodily harm. Fearing their wealthy parents would pay whatever it took to get them out of jail, the judge set bail at $1 million each. With expensive lawyers at their sides, the trial began in the fall of 1977. All three had pleaded not guilty to the charge of kidnapping for ransom, but as the prosecution laid out its case, it was clear they didn't have a chance. In fact, once they learned that there were almost 5,000 pieces of evidence collected by investigators throughout the case, they changed their plea 
to guilty. At least they might have a chance of parole one day, if they could reach a deal. But the prosecution was so confident in what they were presenting in court that no plea deal was ever considered. However, when it came to the charges of causing bodily harm, Fred and Richard refused to change their original plea of not guilty. They insisted that no one was injured during the kidnapping. The judge disagreed, and on December 15, 1977, he found the three guilty on several counts of kidnapping with bodily harm. On top of the 27 counts of kidnapping for ransom, they were going away for a very long time. Fred Woods, James Schoenfeld, and Richard Schoenfeld were each handed 27 life sentences. Since they were also found guilty of kidnapping while inflicting bodily harm, they would never be eligible for parole. The judge's ruling was subject to appeal, which is exactly what they did. And they won, at least a small victory. The appeals court overturned the decision to hold them without the possibility of parole. The question many wanted to know was why. Why had they chosen to kidnap school kids, and a whole busload, no less? James Schoenfeld was the one who provided the answer. He said, We needed multiple victims to get multiple millions, and we picked children because children are precious. The state would be willing to pay ransom for them, and they don't fight back. They're vulnerable. James was 63 years old when he received parole in 2015, three years after his brother Richard was released. In March 2022, the California Board of Parole approved the application submitted by Fred Woods. The now 70-year-old had been rejected 18 times since he was first eligible over 40 years ago. Like the parole board, his supporters believe that he is not a monster and has served enough time behind bars. Bus driver Ed Ray passed away in May 2012 at the age of 91. He never left Chowchilla. The town hailed him as a hero for keeping all the children safe during the dangerous situation. Three years after his death, the town named a park in his honor. A humble man of few words, Ed never quite understood all the attention. During a town celebration about a month after the kidnapping, he told the crowd, More people turned out than I thought there would be. I didn't know I had so many friends. I don't really feel like a hero, but for the past month, everybody has been telling me I am. He concluded by saying, If it happened again, I'd do the same things again, except I wouldn't stop for a van in the road. In 2015, the mayor of Chowchilla declared that February 26th, Ed's birthday, would forever be known as Edward Ray Day. The hope is that every year, people will take a moment on that day to remember how 26 children and one dedicated bus driver survived being buried alive for 16 hours.
He was three stops down on the school bus run when he found himself looking at a stranger's gun. And they said, don't move, because there's more than one. And he thought he'd never see another rising sun. In two old vans, one black and one white, they packed old Ed and the kids uptight. And with all of them screaming a terrible fright, they drove off into the coming night. But old Ed Ray kept his cool that day, and he did everything that they would say. He knew one move and they'd shoot away, and one dead child was too much to pay. One by one they were told to climb down into an old truck trailer grave down in the ground. And old Ed sure they'd never be found, but he had to be brave with those kids around. So Ed and the boys started digging away while some of the kids knelt down to pray. They dug out with an old wooden brace as the dirt and sweat clotted up on his face. True is a production of Imperative Entertainment. This episode of True was researched and written by me. The executive producer is Jason Hoke of Imperative Entertainment. The cover art and design were created by Jenna Sullivan. True was created and is produced by me. If you have any comments or questions, email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. A huge thank you as always for listening. I'll be back next week with another episode. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.